Welcome to Unscripted Equity Curiosity, Season 2, Episode 21. My name is Andrew Friedman, Communications Secretary here at Hedgeye, and I'm here with Ami Joseph, Hedgeye Tech, and Felix Wang, Hedgeye China, uh, is usually on with us, but he cannot make it today, but he does send his best. So you just get Ami and I, but it's been a, quite the eventful uh, couple of weeks here, Ami, with uh, earnings season, uh, a lot of the big tech names all reporting uh, results, uh, pretty much a lot of weakness and fundamentals on the margin. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's that part of the cycle, it seems. So, you know, maybe today, I, I think it's, you know, topical and interesting, and especially from my perspective, just to kind of pick your brain, because, you know, I'm, I graduated from college in uh, 07, oh, no, 11, uh, in 11, graduated high school in 07. So, you know, I kind of started my career off just coming out of the great financial crisis. Uh, obviously, um, you know, paid quite a, a lot of attention to what was going on during that period of time, but I wasn't in my current seat or analyzing communication services stocks at that time. Um, I know you've had a long and illustrious career uh, covering all parts of the tech ecosystem, including many, many of my names uh, in the past as well, uh, that go path, go, you know, multiple cycles, right? Um, so, Maybe just kind of like lay things out. Uh, I would just love to hear kind of how you're how you look at this cycle and think about it. Um, you know, in terms of valuation, uh, fundamentals, growth rates, uh, investor sentiment, all all those things, right? Compared to you know maybe the great financial crisis um, or you know the the tech you know bust in two thousand two thousand one. Um, so. I guess I'll just leave it at that and let you run with it. And, you know, I'll ask you questions as we go. That works. Yeah. Um, thanks, Andrew. Um, uh, and, and welcome, everyone. So just going back in memory to the fall of 2008, uh, the market was dropping massively every day. Um, the it, it Suddenly, like, everyone was frantically trying to become an expert on mortgage CDS and and um, uh, mortgage-backed securities. Like I was a tech analyst. I was like, what the hell does this have to do with anything? I'm like trying to focus on, uh, you know, I was, I was doing, um, semis and hardware at the time mainly. And I'm like, you know, Infineon just got, uh, one important socket at Apple <laughs> for their, because they have a leading edge, um, transistor, um, um, what's it called? Um, um, radio RF, uh, um, I'm forgetting all the terms now, but like basically their, their chip for, um, for controlling input and output on the radio is was actually like more high performance than anything else out there at the time. And so they were winning there and that was getting them other sockets on the iPhone and kind of like, that's what I was, you know, focused on and excited about. And suddenly the ground just totally, uh, evaporated under our feet and, and by the way, the housing short idea like was like multiple years old. Like you could you could see that there was a housing bubble already in 2005. And like people who tried to short in 05 didn't do well in 05 or 06 or 07, right? It was finally in the back half of 08 that uh, they did really well. And by the way, the smartest of them were short financials um, because those were, you know, kind of like the ones that were carrying all the risk. And the ones that, you know, the warning shot across the bow is, of course, Bear Stearns disappearing like a year and a half in advance, you know, before all of that. Um, and then um, 
And then in the crisis, in the middle of the crisis, I, if I remember correctly, the U.S. government made it illegal to short financials um, in that moment. And so, like, suddenly, like, all these people who were, like, actually making money on the short side got eviscerated and blown up in that moment, uh, covering the financial shorts. Um, and, of course, like, even after that, even though that, you know, drove those stocks up for, like, four days, um, like, an extreme amount, like, 20, 40, 60% in some cases, like, they all went into lows. Um, and at the time, the financial plumbing was just not working. And we were like at risk of um, of like the bar. Like we were at risk of like blowing up United States dollar, treasury, like the whole system was about to go down and we were all gonna go back to like find a farm and work on a farm. Um, that was kind of like how that went. And when the US government Finally, you know, kind of showed up and helicopter money and, and it was rounds and rounds of helicopter money and, and all that kind of stuff um, to get things restarted again. Um, at that point, there was some really interesting analysis to be done. Okay, at that point, um, Intet, for example, that uh, we were like, for example, mapping and measuring. Like, if you looked at um, actual, let's say, demand for PCs. And you took like you know, two Q08 as sort of like the last decent quarter, and you measured it to one Q09 or so. You saw that the actual buying demand was down something like, call it like eight to twelve percent, which is terrible, right? But like TSMC, I think at the bottom had like a thirty-three percent utilization rate, a thirty-four percent utilization rate, down from like a hundred and. They, they go above 100 when they're like really busy in terms of like mathematical utilization of capacity relative to what they can actually ship great more than they have in capacity because they're shipping out of inventory, they're shipping out of what they typically consider to be pre-production wafers and things like that that they don't include in official capacity numbers. Um, so they were coming from like over 100% capacity down to 33%. And you're like, okay, well, I don't know where demand stops falling. Maybe demand's going to go down another 10 points. So it'll be down 20 points. You know, point to point, right? From TQ08 to wherever it stops. Um, but TSMC going from 34% utilization rate up to call it 80% relative utilization rate is a home run stock, right? Like if that's what the stock is reflecting at the trough, that is a home run. Um, and so you could start to make math uh, work on your side. Um, that was like the beginning analysis. And then it wasn't that much longer from there that you were even able to see that, like, um, once you could see that the world was continuing, you could even start to get product cycles for free fall into your lap. For example, um, LEDs, which had previously, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here on 2008, but like LED, I, I just think like this, all of this kind of math and this structure of like thinking about the post-recovery uh, opportunities is, is important for everybody to start uh, sharpening their pencils. I have no idea when that is, but it's just a good, it's just, this is, these, these are the math tools that's gonna help all of us on the other side of it. Um, uh, that you could see uh, back then that Samsung was trying to um, take, to leapfrog, the, use this crisis to leapfrog the entire uh, television industry and produce TVs made with LED chips, which would enable them to uh, 
save uh, on power and cost and heating and uh, of the TV and therefore reduce components and number and 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 slim it down and uh, make it lighter and all these things and visually much better and much more stimulating because they were a big improvement over this over the stuff that was before. And so, um, and so even though LED LEDs, the biggest thing that they had you know, been made for before was something, a much smaller application. So this was going to be literally like the pig uh, going through the Python and you could you just, there was gonna require a massive amount of CapEx on the LED industry and a massive surge in capacity and so on and so forth. You could get long, you know, Samsung as the product cycle leader and that supply chain um, as beneficiaries. So, so this is the kind of thoughts that are like um, at some point going to help us all out of this. However, this isn't what what we're in right now is is, is so far so far. Uh, I mean, I, I I put this in one of my notes that I spoke with Steiner offline, and he's tracking like CDS is blowing out, and 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 you know some sort of like this you know Steiner is, is head guys um, financials and macro sector head pro uh, sector head uh, Josh Steiner. And I was talking with him offline on on Slack and Charles Slack, and, and um, he was just talk, pointing out how like CDSs are blowing out and so on and so forth. And 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 I was really uh, going to one of the slides in their uh, last macro theme stack, which showed that the entire world is short US US dollars just by virtue of the debt that they own in US dollars, like outside of and US has natural hedge. If you have debt in US and you transact in US dollar, then that's a natural hedge. But if you're a foreign country or a foreign company that transacts outside of U.S. dollars, but you have U.S. dollar denominated debt, you're essentially short the U.S. dollar, and the U.S. dollar just keeps going up. And the more we fight inflation, the more it is going to go up. Um, and so you have this, you have this like situation where the sort of you know cover moment is like bankruptcies around the world, which you know I put this in my note, you know, following this conversation with Josh that. That is a, a 2008 flashback moment that we may be, that may be ahead of us over the next three years. Yeah. Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully not. Um, I, I, do you mind if I ask it? Yeah, no, yeah. no worries. Please, no, no, no. no. Good, good. That was really helpful. Um, I guess maybe just to like, <clears throat> I'm curious, like from a structural standpoint, right? Um, you know, how, from when you think about like tech, whether it's semis, hardware, enterprise software, SaaS, you know, like, like, is there any big structural differences today versus, you know, call it 2007, 2008, that would have an impact on maybe the pace of like the fundamental impact on the way down or the pace of recovery on the back end? Like, if that makes any sense, like, are the is there like whether it's adoption, like product types? I'm just curious, or like supply chains. Like, I'm just trying to think through. You know, it's been a while, right? It's been ten over to well over ten years, ten fifteen years since you know that period last cycle. I mean, it's been much longer since 2000 2002. Um, so I'm curious, like, if you see anything structurally different today that would impact the pace of recovery. Uh, this time around, potentially versus back then for technology companies. Yeah, I think on the semi side back then, 
we were still in a zone where you had two major um, supply growth technologies um, or technologies that drove supply growth, um, meaning like, you know, forget about how much dollars you're spending, you're, you're driving supply growth just by the nature of like your engineers coming to work every day and creating technology. And uh, one of those was the maturation and efficiency of 300 millimeter technology, which was still you know, becoming the dominant you know, supply base for what was just 12 inch you know, supply base and semiconductors and that you know, conversion from eight inch that, that drives more supply into the market. And so at the time, for example, in 2008, 2009 and, and seven, companies facing difficulty were moving as fast as they could to 12 in, from eight inch wafers to 12 inch wafers because the 12 inch wafers got them more bang for their buck and greater efficiency and cost and things like that. But it also introduced a lot more supply into the market at the same time, right? It was like, it was like this, like, uh, you're trying to save yourself by making it harder. Um, and similarly, Moore's Law was live and well in terms of node migrations. And so you were moving from, I don't remember which node it was, but you know, whatever it was from, from 110 to 90 or from 90 to 65 nanometer or whatever it was, those are healthy and full node migrations. So you were still getting 30, 40 plus percent cost per bit improvements on each node. So, um, so you had a lot of supply growth, which I think made it hard. You know, semis obviously recovered in a beta trade in 2009 and into the beginning of 2010. But it made it hard for them to sustain that recovery because there was still excess supply growth. It was really only a couple of years later where that sort of all played out and, and things got tight. In semis, there's excess supply, excess capacity or excess supply right now only because, um, you know, the bubble that we just were in, everything got tight, supply chains got limited and everything was over, you know, like autos were you know, looking for semi chips and whatever, and all that's going to normalize and there'll be excess there. Um, but that's all more COVID related and not about like ongoing technology growth areas that will continue regardless of the pain. So the point is that it's kind of like once this passes, you'll get past it. And then the other thing with semis is there's geopolitical risk that the number one you know, most important country in the world in Taiwan for in terms of semiconductors is going to be in trouble or- I, I guess, yeah, I mean, that's uh, like, what do you, like, I mean, globalization is probably like a big theme, right? Like, and deglobalization is, and maybe it's deglobalization, not globalization, right? Um, but globalization over the last decade has been a big theme. Like, you know, like when you think about China, you just mentioned Taiwan. Um, <clears throat> when you think about like, how the world's different today, um, you know, how, how, like, how does that impact maybe like your view on demand trends and where we kind of are today versus back in 07? Like, like we're, when you, when you were back in the bunker then, like where was like China, like how big of a, you know, how big was China and Taiwan and you were thinking of the global supply chain and as a driver in your models, right? It's probably like the more direct question versus like where it is today. Um, yeah, it's 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 much bigger today. Um, the semiconductor industry has consolidated and consolidated and consolidated, and you know the leadership of TSMC has has gone from lagging to equal to leading, to leading by far. So it's it's 
it's it's it's even more today uh, than it was back then by by a long shot. Um, so so I think today because of that situation, I think there's potentially even a scarcity value across some areas of semiconductor. I don't know if I'd want to get involved with anything auto pacing in semis right now, but um, but if you're, you know, maybe the U.S. semicaps who are like going to be needed to build alternate supply chains to Taiwan in a, in a very fast manner, I'm not sure, you know, and I'm not sure how fast all that can happen uh, or when triggers get pulled, but it seems like, it seems likely at this point that they're going to, you know, alternate supply chains are going to get built and that there's a scarcity value for those companies. So I, I don't think, at least semi-cap equipment, I don't think is in as terrible a situation as it was, you know, back then. I think the situation is a little bit different for software. Um, I think it's a little bit different, a little harder actually this time around for software. Um, well, why is that? It's like right now there's like, I guess the opposite of scarcity. Value. What's, the, what's the word for that? Excess? Um, you have, you've got, how many publicly traded SaaS companies are there today versus in 2008 or even total software companies back in 2008? There weren't that many. Um, and today there is a boatload. Um, and so I, and, and that's in part, that's an equity statement, which means the equity has to consolidate. And one of that is the multiple, one way that happens is multiple. The other way that happens is some of them go away. And, the other is some of them get taken out. I think a lot of them will get taken out. Um, so there'll be consolidation at the equity level. Uh, but it's also a statement about uh, competition. Like there's too many massive software companies who have scale, who have R&D dollars and self-funding uh, from revenues to continue to move in that direction, who are hungry for growth and will compete for growth who can spin up additional functionality, features and functionality, and there's so much overlapping, it's so many overlapping areas. Um, just even thinking of the area of data capture and analysis is just a, it's just littered uh, with companies in that uh, in that category. And so it's, it's, it's um, it will make the recovery more difficult is number one. And number two is, um, enterprise software spending has just now completed like a period where it was super important, right? Like what enterprises were doing was really important because they were all trying to go from being like a company that doesn't know how to do anything other than email and Excel to a company that uses AWS and spins up capacity as needed and um, and uses Kafka for underlying event streaming and so on. DevOps is moving in and all these things. And in order to make themselves more nimble, more pliable, more flexible, more technology, you know, more digital based, essentially, even to create, whether it's product or digital marketing or engagement with their customers and employees, et cetera, all from a digital angle. All of that is that big push it's ongoing, but a lot of the push happened with sort of comping a big rate of change increase in that push. And so like their needs are like less categorically going to grow in the next five years you know, versus the last five years. So it's not necessarily, and there's going to definitely be, there's going to be consolidation right now over the next year in terms of budgets and budgets means that 
you know, tools that are underutilized are going to get caught and so on and so forth. And seats are going to get caught and you lose and you know, there'll be winners and losers among all of this. Um, it seems like that's a, it seems like that's like, given where we're on the like labor market, but it just seems like that's a, it's not something that's like, that's something that seems like that could play out like as a, like death by a thousand cups cuts over, you know, 12 to 18 months or two years. Yeah. Right. Like like given where budget decisions get made, like whether it's like mid-year versus year end, by the time you review everything, by you figure out headcount, like utilization, like rates, like it sounds like what you're describing, like is like an oversaturation almost, right. Where like, you know, maybe like, what would that, would that like flow through like net dollar retention? Like what, what do you think best, like the most commonly used metric for like a SaaS company or is um, that if that thesis kind of plays out here, we'd start to see like industry softness across a certain KPI or two. Yeah, I mean it, it's 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 got a, it's got it's going to show up in backlog based billings and the translation also from backlog to revenue um, will have hiccups as well, which it has not had, and that's because of duration changes and contracts and pushouts, cancellations, and churn. And I think uh, if you remember, like I've talked about this on this podcast before, but once upon a time, software was this market that everybody loved because, you know, 97% incremental margins and so on and so forth, but that, and very, very sticky, but that was software that you bought for on-premise data centers that you had to also allocate servers to and spend a boatload of money installing it, managing it, uh, maintaining it, customizing it. Uh, now, a lot of SaaS tools are, you know, just as easy to turn on as they are to turn off, which in the long term means they will have a much wider landing, right? There'll be much more, many more companies and users eventually than the prior uh, TAMs that were available, adjustable markets that were available. But in the short term, it also can mean that, you know, the pain is felt fairly in short order. And I think there will be scarcity value among the winners who can continue to produce growth, notwithstanding this environment. And so those multiples will uh, either reflate a little bit or remain high. Um, But the blended average multiple for the group will probably continue to go lower uh, just because of that uh, that excess. And it, it also is more like you know, enterprise spending just isn't always that amazing. There are periods where enterprise tech spending is just ho-hum. And that is like, can be like a 10-year statement, by the way, not like a one-year statement that can, that can last 10 years. And then within there, there are always like hot areas, right? So like, oh, there are virtualization that everyone's spending on now, deduplication that everyone's spending on now. And so you, you, you have your product cycles in there. Now it might be DevOps, I think right now, but um, and you have your areas of spending that will remain like robust and the hot new area that everybody needs for whatever reason. But like the the total spending is going to be yeah. difficult. Is there is there is there like a white space up op- like when you think about it, like is there like any white space opportunity left in in, in tech? Like any like uh, you know obvious hole or obvious like place where like there can be a lot of growth going forward coming out of this cycle? Well, I mean, when you ask that question, I immediately go to like Icarus and and is Icarus still 
you know, higher towards the sun. And I think that if in fact there are such white spaces, um, AI is coming to dis destroy it yeah. to, to, to make the, the wax, the beeswax melt uh, on the wings. So I, I think, um, at least as far as I see it now, AI is not a uh, necessarily a positive catalyst for software. It may be a very negative, it can be a negative catalyst. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, for my space, like obviously like Meta and Google are like, you know, you control F AI and their transcripts, like they're making huge investments in it, right? To help make, you know, search more efficient on the case of Google to help, um, you know, with, uh, <laughs> yeah, make search more efficient, um, you know, help drive a higher ROI to advertisers on the platform. Obviously, you know, YouTube and the algorithm, discovery algorithm over there. Meta is making a huge push into AI and discovery, investing a ton of money in CapEx, you know, to build out kind of the servers and infrastructure to support that push because they're trying to compete with TikTok. Um, you know, and so I, I guess like I'm curious from your side, like, it, like, are there any pure plays in like AI that, you know, would benefit from all this spend, not necessarily like the infrastructure side, but it seems like a lot of this money is just going in, on in like internal R&D efforts, like an internal development, uh, because so much of it seems to just be like, you know, proprietary, right? Like, you know, it's not necessarily something you can just go out and buy. It's kind of proprietary to your own systems. It's machine learning based. There's a lot to it. Um but I guess kind of going back to the, yeah, that question is like, you know, you know, when, they, when we moved to SaaS, right? Like it was obvious, like what was happening, but maybe not obvious back then, but like, you know, the shift from enterprise on-premise over to, you know, SaaS, right? Like it made sense. Like you don't want to have servers. Okay, got it. No more on-prem. You know, now I, I totally understand like AI and maybe it's just like the efficiency play to like, you know, get headcount down ultimately because, you know, that's, you know, a very expensive part, like a big part of the PL. But, um, you know, it's, it's like, you know, and maybe, and maybe that's it. Maybe it's like AI to supplant like labor, right? Like, and that's like labor is like today is like what, like on-premise software, like servers, like a, a, a business of like, you know, 10 employees having a server room, right? And like all those things, like, to that today equivalent is like big tech with labor and AI solves the problem. I, I don't, I don't know. I'm just like randomly thinking um, curious, like how you see it and like how you think about it from like an investable theme, you know, on a go forward. Well, right now the, 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 in terms of pure play AI companies, um, the VCs are uh, funding uh, a lot in that territory, even even today, even through like right now with all this crisis, they're still aggressive on AI names. Um, so there's definitely a bunch of um, smaller companies. It, I don't know if any of them will see the light of day. That probably the best of them will get acquired, and the worst of them will disappear. Um, the um, because this space is is going to evolve very rapidly, and 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 you, as you mentioned, the biggest companies in the world have been investing in this area for a decade already. So it's like it's very, you know, it's 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 obviously that doesn't mean they're going to own this area because you know like they can you know the startups can zig when they zag, and certainly already we see from Dolly that that uh, they're doing something that that you know Amazon and, and Google uh, and and Facebook and whatever haven't done. 
So, um, so it, it's definitely possible. I think the most important question, the most important technology, by the way, in AI is actually the human brain, because you've got to ask the right question, which is like, you know, something along the lines of what in our business can we commoditize this way? Uh, and in the case of Dolly, for example, they have access to, you know, zil- you know hundreds of millions of picture photos uh, for training the machine and the English language. And combining those two things, um, they can train the machine and turn out like really interesting results. Um, and so the question will be, and that is a threat to Adobe. And so the question will be what other areas of like digital world are, are going to, you know, suffer the same situation that you said Labor, I was thinking actually like developers, you know, at some point code creation um, can be scaled this way as well, because you already see AI assistance with code creation today. I'm probably 10 years too early with that comment. Maybe that's maybe that's just in the future. Um, but certainly in the graphic design world, we're already seeing that that come in and that will hurt the labor market in graphic design, which is not a small labor market. Um, in terms of pure play companies that we could talk about, I mean, the the biggest that I know are um, not exactly pure play, but they're close. One is Databricks, which is still private, but competes with Snowflake. And that's kind of like, I don't know, the probably the first tool in the software land that people will grab for. I don't know if they need it, but it's the, it's the, it's the tool that people will use to, to get themselves the preconditions to be able to go in the direction of AI. And then the other is probably NVIDIA, which is obviously not a pure play, but which uh, again, I think, I don't think you have to go in that direction. I think a lot of people will automatically go in the direction of NVIDIA for AI. And so the, those two things together are probably the opening volley. Um, I would say as an addendum to the NVIDIA grab, I, I believe if I understand correctly, AI is very DRAM intensive. And so stocks like companies like Micron and Samsung and Hynix will probably also in some way participate in that kind of moment because it will drive that need um, pretty substantially. So anyway, that's the, that's the, on the terms of like the beneficiaries, it's sort of like the initial thought process that I have. Got it. Okay. And then you know, I'm, we've been, I think we've been probably going for uh, a little over 20 minutes here, but um, I guess, I guess maybe just to, to kind of tie it back to the initial part of the conversation, um, you know, back to kind of the last big tech blow up, right? Um, there was a school of thought that, oh, this isn't 2000, 2001, because back then you had, you know, profitless companies, everything was, you know, making no money and it was trading at, you know, 50, $60 billion EV or some absurd, you know, multiple, right? Um, you know, and then today it's like, oh, these companies are you know, more mature, they're profitable. Uh, you know, this time is different. So <clears throat> I guess like when you think about it, like objectively comparing like today versus then, like what, like obviously completely two different periods in time, like companies do, you know, look different, right? Fundamentally, they're much larger and they're more profitable for the most part of tech. But I guess, like, what do you think is, like, the biggest difference between now and then? And what do you think is the biggest uh, or, the like, the, the greatest similarity uh, between now and then? And it doesn't have to be fundamental only. It could be, like, sentiment. It could be whatever. Um, like, any pattern that you can identify or think about. Uh, curious to get your thoughts there. So um, now versus then, uh, two similarities. Uh, first is that 
just like back then, back then there was, um, there developed a, a shortage of uh, semiconductor chips and computer hardware. Um, and, and here this time around, it's, it's, it's hardware in general, including autos, right? It's like everything supply chain related, but um, it, it, they developed a massive sh- a shortage. Lead times went further and further and further out, like 10, 11, 12 months, a year and a half, whatever it was, just like now. And then suddenly it all came crashing down and there was like cancellations and, and, and people realized that there had been double and triple quadruple booking because when clients, you know, if I can't get what I need from my traditional supplier, I'm going to go and place the same order with four other suppliers. Meanwhile, meanwhile, my traditional supplier is trying to get me those parts. And I'm just sitting at the customer. I'm just like, I'm waiting for whatever comes to me, whichever's first. And then I'm going to cancel the other orders. Um, so that's what happened then. And that's in the process of happening today. It's a little more complicated today because of the uh, uh, take or pay uh, clauses and contracts and duration of contracts and inventory management, things like that, and better software visibility for supply chains. But there's some similarities there. The second and more probably more important, I should have started with this one, is the similarity is that was a multiple correction. Like multiples got way out of whack, in addition to fundamentals, you know, facing a difficult time. But like multiples got way out of whack. And this time multiples got way out of whack. And it took a long time for that to wash off. Um, and a long time means in my mind, like, you know, starts at like March, March 2020 to October, 2002, uh, if you're, that doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're an investor sitting there every day, looking at your screen, hoping to find semiconductor and hardware and tech stocks that go up, um, you're in big trouble. The other thing that I'll mention is that back then, the biggest bubble area was e-commerce. And that eventually proved out, all those theses proved out to be fantastic, right? Because like even buying Amazon at the top back then would have been fine today. Of course, there were lots of losers and you didn't want to buy any of the losers because they actually literally went away. Um, but if you could stock pick around the winners, even buying Amazon at the top last time, you're in a lot of pain for the next long time. But it, looking back, that was a pretty decent investment. But one of the, one of the other bubbles was in communications equipment um, which had gotten going in 96 with deregulation and such. And so there was like a lot of spend. And there was also a transition for, uh, to, to second to 2G, from 1G to 2G in the back half of the 90s. And 3G was around the road. And, and, and the carrier spent like crazy on 3G licenses because it was going to unlock this data world, the beginning of the data world that we all live in today. Um, and so there's this big spending moment and communications equipment, that bubble. Uh, proved to be like literally never, never came back. Like if you just look at Ericsson stock, uh, that's like a good bellwether for looking back all the way to them. It's literally nowhere near and never will be anywhere near back then. And and if you look at um, Nokia, uh, is Nokia Siemens uh, Networks is is consolidated like six different Alcatel and Lucent and Nortel all disappeared into that, like into that pile. And even Siemens, um, uh, it, 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 communications infrastructure all disappeared. And so that bubble uh, disappeared. Um, and in that, um, even, even like areas where there was so much, like there was a lot of investment in dark fiber and, and, and fiber in general that stayed dark. <laughs> it, was, it was supposed to get lit. 
and it stayed dark. And there were, you know, people tried to buy up dark fiber at the bottom, and and some of them made good money because it went from like pennies to, to to tens of pennies, but it never really recovered its value, any anything near scarcity value ever. Um, and in part, that's like you know Moore's law or the communications version of Moore's law. And in part, that's also um, the presence of deflators like Huawei and stuff. But even the last three years, where Huawei's been been you know pigeonholed or, or put in a prisoner box or whatever you want to call it, uh, a penalty box by the whole world, basically for the last three years. Even so, I mean, look at Ericsson stock. Like what a <laughs> It hasn't been like it hasn't played out. You, know, you, you have no good times here. You're not singing songs as an Ericsson shareholder, um, and you're still, you know, below things that you ever, you know, never, never would have imagined you could never ever recover. Um, so I guess like my thought process is uh, this time around there'll be parts of this bubble where we'll look back like we did like with Amazon and we'll be like, holy cow! Even then, even with the pain, it was so such a good time to buy it. Uh, and there'll be other things that we all bought, maybe, that um, we'll look back, maybe Web3, I don't know, that we'll look back and be like, that was never, ever worth that again. Yeah. Um, well, so actually on that point, and we're going to wrap up after this, but just maybe a fun question to end it. Like, if you had to think of like one kicker, and I'll provide mine after too, but if you can think of like one stock that you're just like this will never get back to its high that it saw like through covid and like it's whether it's 2020 2021 or if or if it does it's not going to be for like 15 years like what is there a specific company or ticker that kind of is like top of mind for you um easily alterix but uh, but but it, it applies like the fifteen minute comment applies to almost the entire sector. Um, there'll be there'll be leaders who get back a little sooner. Yeah, yeah, no, but I'm I'm just thinking like but, you know like like just it's a very basic yeah, question. But Not, are, yeah, I know it's a it's a really good question. I think about it a lot, and I I, I don't have um, a perfect answer, but any, I guess the characteristic would be um, any company whose technology is more backward looking in a space that is moving rapidly forward and it's losing its leadership but going into the recent bubble it still had a certain amount of leadership and so it, and so it inflated with everything else um, and maybe UiPath also like will never touch its IPO price again because it's just not being used in the way that yeah yeah that kind of thing it's another one yeah, I guess uh, for me, it's kind of, I'll just, I mean, I just think of Spotify, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a great, you know, great consumer value proposition. People love it. Um, but and, unless if they can, as the business stands today, based on what they've currently told us, right, um, it's unlikely that this company gets back to, you know, its all time high of, you know, 387 uh, that, that it hit in the spring of 21. Um Obviously, like I could, I could have, I could have pulled like an AMC, right, or a Fubo. Those are kind of like probably obvious bubble stocks, right? But um, you know, Spotify is one that's like an actually like a real business with like a real consumer uh, use case. Uh, but I think you know the valuation got ahead of itself, and it's very unlikely that it gets back anywhere close to that. Um, you know, 
over a, a five-year period and likely even a 10-year period. But uh, again, that's as the business stands today. Uh, they could do something between now and then to change things. Um, but that's uh, that was the one for me. Um, okay, great. Um, do you have anything else or do you want to, you're okay with wrapping up here? This no, that, no, thank you. That, that helped me like think through some of these things that I probably need. Yeah, no, it's, it's helpful for me too, right? Because like, you know, this is my, I guess, yeah. I mean, like COVID was a cycle, right? Um, you know, we've seen kind of like mini cycles softening in demand and accelerating trends over the last decade. But, you know, as far as the communication space goes in my coverage, this is uh, this is new. Um, and I think the biggest like mistake and I've made and repositioning my thought process is like, you know, I saw the rapid decline that happened during COVID and then everything snapped back so quickly. Right. And so all my beliefs on how long and how bad I think everyone thing was going to happen, like during the spring, early summer part of 2021, right. <clears throat> quickly just got turned upside down because we just came out the other side, like a bat out of hell. And I got, like we we moved things around pretty quickly, but like I got squeezed on a lot of names and it was a very uncomfortable period of time for my process and a fundamental analyst, right? Just because things were just so like nothing made sense, right? But like the stock prices were moving and the fundamentals didn't seem solid. There's so much stimulus, right? Fed policy, the list goes on and on. Um, but I think, you know, trying to, I applied that kind of, past experience to this current period, which, um, you know, wasn't, which I think is, was a mistake. I've corrected that mistake, obviously, but I think, um, you know, it's very becoming very clear that, you know, at least in comms land, that this is not going to be a fast recovery. Um, We're not going to see a really massive reacceleration in growth rates here. um, And likely that, you know, earnings expectations that, you know, people thought, well, we're definitely happening now with like Meta and Google, but, you know, if you thought one, if you thought 2023, right, we're going to get back to 21, like you're wrong. You know, it's like, this is probably going to be like, you know, we get back to 2021 levels of earnings, maybe 24, 25, right? Like it's going to take several years to kind of work through this. And it's just the slow grind lower. Um, you know, for a lot of companies, but we're at this point where I think things are accelerating to the downside, um, at least in for advertising and, and in my space. And there's still so much uncertainty related to, um, you know, what the sustainable ROIC is and competitive dynamics and cost of capital is going up. So it's just a complete disaster. Um, and it's really hard to tell and see like what comes out when we get out on the other side, what causes that. Um, <clears throat> and then in between now and then it's like, you know, valuation just doesn't matter because your numbers are constantly wrong. Um, and there's so much value destruction happening. So um, that's my kind of two cents in terms of like the two cycles that I've actually been a comms and I was living through, right. The mini COVID, you know, bust boom cycle that happened very in a compressed period of time. And now like this cycle that is just, it's all happening at a much slower pace, but it makes it so much more difficult. I think as an investor and especially as a portfolio manager, if you're long short, trying to like manage your positions because you get like these crazy bear market rallies and, 
you know, everyone wants to, everyone's trained after a decade of like ZERP and Fed, easy Fed policy to like buy the dip. And so there's just a huge behavioral aspect that people have to work through in addition to just the changing fundamentals and like modeling assumptions that, you know, I think is, it's very, very difficult. Um, And it's going to be interesting to see kind of like how we come out on the other side when we do and what investor perception is and how people think about taking on risk. Because one thing I remember very clearly starting off in like asset allocation and equity research, like I did, I was an institutional consultant for several years coming out of college and like advising pension funds, foundations, um, running asset allocation studies. And I just remember then like the risk profile, like you could, we couldn't get clients to buy equities. Like we, it was like pulling teeth. You know, like they didn't want to take risk. The leverage, hell no, right? Like anything that had leverage to it, you didn't want to touch, right? It was like unencumbered balance sheets, no debt. Like that's what's that's what we want. You know, either from a single stock perspective or from like us from an asset class perspective. Very little appetite to take on like you know even high yield risk, and. You know, so far we haven't even gone through like a bankruptcy cycle, which is crazy to think about. Like when the last time we went through like a true, true bankruptcy cycle. Um, and then the Fed sitting there saying they're going to keep rates higher for longer. And then you're like, all right, well, what happens when all these companies that are levered four to five times have to go refi their debt out in two years, right? Or repay all their debt that they've been buying back stock and they have no cash. Their cost of capital is going to go way up. Their interest expense is going to go way up. So it's just as far as the cycle goes, like it's cycling and it's uh, very difficult to see kind of the path forward to recovery. Um, you know, even if you just think about the comps, like, yeah, maybe the comps get easier, like the back half of next year, or like some point in Q2, or maybe even as early as January, February. Right. Um, but it does seem that like, this is like a different regime and it's going to be interesting to see how investors think and allocate capital, make decisions you know, because you're talking like an entire generation of investors, millennials, right, that grew up and were trained to make capital decisions in a certain framework that is not working at the, is no longer working at the moment. And odds are like not going to work going forward, right? Like they're going to have to change and reorient and probably it's going to be more focused on cash flow and DCFs and like the really, kind of basic blocking and tackling of valuation-based models. Um, but I don't, I think there's like, we're not at that capitulation point yet where, where people are like ready to say like, this is it, I'm done. Um, anyway, I rambled a little bit at the end, but that's uh, just kind of how I'm thinking about like sentiment cycles, fundamentals in my space. It's just, it's, it's just like this could ha- like right now, it seems like it just could go, ha- it can go on for much, much longer. And uh if I end up being the contra in this in this little uh, you know, uh, conversation here, that's uh, that'll actually be a good thing. But um, that's just part of thinking. So I'll leave it at that. Well, I think like typically I would say fast is good, right? Because if it's accelerating downward, you're going to find bone. You know, you're going to chew through fat and muscle and whatever. And yeah. Bedrock pretty quickly. The other thing I'll say is that on cycles that the last like two and a half years the, I, reminds me that. You know, it's kind of like what what you is like a mini cycle, and what you it's all the characteristics of a long, you know, kind of like normal like six to nine year cycle that play out in accelerated fashion on a two and a half year basis. 
And um, so typically, you know, take everything you've learned over the last two and a half years and, and, and for a normal cycle, if, if that's what's next, stretch it out over like seven or eight or nine years and that's what's coming. But if I, if I'm, if I'm putting my thinking head on properly, I think if anything, the next cycle we have is going to be maybe even, you know, less than two and a half years. Like maybe it'll be like a year and a quarter. It'll be like, yeah. we're, gonna have, we're gonna go through the, the highs and the lows and the acceleration and the re-acceleration and the deceleration in a very short time frame, I think. And that will create even more confusion and volatility in equities. Yeah. All right. Well, on that bright note, um, <laughs> uh, uh, thank you, everyone, uh, for listening. Thank you, Ami, for providing um, that uh, very helpful perspective and historical context. Thanks. And, um, you know, thanks, everyone, again, for listening and hopefully catch you back here next time for another episode of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. Have a good day out there. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedge subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedge Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more details, Detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.